Thank you, Rev. Latia, for that gracious introduction. Um, I just want to say thank you to Rev. Latia and thank you, Nick uh, Pickrell, who could not be here uh, for this invitation. It truly is uh, a blessing and an honor to be here with you all today to converse and to share um, and to commune with you all. So today's conversation will be about race, liberation, and economics. Um, my name is Dr. Joshua Bartholomew. As was mentioned, I am the Assistant Professor of Ethics, Church, and Society at St. Paul's School of Theology. Um, I've been here for uh, about a year now, um, so I'm just really excited to have this conversation. I'm sorry. Can we pause one second? Yes. It was my fault. Kids, please go with Madison. <laughs> That just record. Yeah, just record. <clears throat> so much of, much of this research today um, comes out of my academic research. Um, as was mentioned, a lot of this comes straight from my forthcoming book uh, entitled Black Theology and the Black Panthers. And the consistent or the central core theme of that book um, is this. Capitalism cannot improve the lives and conditions of all people. Okay, capitalism cannot improve the lives and conditions of all people. So just to give you a, a quick rundown of what we will be doing today in this conversation, um, first we're going to begin with a quick conversation about connections between um, race and religion. Um, then we will switch to a conversation about the racial politics of black theology. And then we will transition into a conversation about economic justice. Now the subtext of this entire conversation uh, will be anti-colonialism. Uh, and anti-colonialism is really a focus on racial and economic justice. And we'll get into more of that as we talk specifically about economic justice. But just know that running concurrently, running continuously um, throughout every topic, every slide that we discuss today um, will be anti-colonialism. So let's begin with this question. What is religion? Yes, please. Let's, let's make this interactive. What is religion? Maybe the way you make sense of the world or the way that you frame belief in God. Okay, excellent. Yep. Anybody else? The way, you make, the way we make sense of the world, the way we frame belief in God. Anyone else? What is religion? Okay, okay. A way a society controls people. Anyone else? A collection of rituals and beliefs around understanding the divine. Okay. Rituals and beliefs around understanding the divine that brings a community together. Okay. 
All of these are acceptable answers, okay? I want to offer a working definition for us, all right? So religion refers to existential dimensions of life which may or may not be immediately obvious to human beings. Can we all get down with this definition? Can we all just say, can we all say that this is okay? This is good, we all accept it? Excellent, good, great. Now, let's consider some scholars of religion who may have uh, provided a framework of thinking for why we may have accepted that definition and why some of us may have offered the definitions that we offered a few seconds ago, right? Has anybody ever heard of this, this person? Mircea Eliade, historian of religion. Okay, has anybody ever heard of <clears throat> um, the dichotomy between the sacred and the profane? Okay, if you've heard of sacred versus profane, then you've heard of, you've heard of Mircea Eliade, okay? Um, has anybody ever heard of uh, Durkheim? Okay. Can anybody tell me why he is uh, important or why, what he's famous for? What's his notable contribution to scholarship? Okay, so he, he is, he is no, he's credited as the founder of sociology. Okay. Um, he's also said something that we've, we've sort of grafted onto our understanding of religion that all societies sort of have a collective character, okay? So, the, so this, this notion that ethics has a social dimension, all right? What I'm doing is showing you all that you've been impacted by some of these scholars of religion. You may not even know, okay? Anybody ever heard of Max Muller? Okay, anybody, can anybody tell me who or what he did? <laughs> okay. Anybody want to take a guess? Okay. Um, he's actually credited with contributing to the, to, the, to the academic study of religion, some of the first data that we considered worthy of uh, comprising the actual category itself, so linguistics. Okay. Let's keep this going. Oh, but before I move on, do we notice any commonalities? among these scholars, among these individuals? Okay, men. White men. Yeah, that's it. Okay, Europeans. All right. Stay with me. So if we were to take World Religions 101, what would we expect to study? Christianity, okay, definitely, right? Judaism, yes, Judaism, excellent. Islam, okay, so we have the Abrahamic religions, yes. Buddhism, excellent. Hinduism, fantastic, okay. Anybody else want to throw anything else in there? Okay, you can throw that in there, that's good. But can we all agree? sort of unanimously, that what's been mentioned will definitely be in the class, right? Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, excellent. And that is true. 
That is true. You see, there's a relationship between the category of religion and the construct of race. What didn't we mention? What didn't automatically come to mind when I asked, what would we study in a world religions class? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but, but what kind of religions, what kind of religions did not come to mind? What's, what's not included? If we're, if we're thinking hemispherically or geographically, continentally, what's not included here that we didn't automatically assume? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Right. So so we completely just didn't mention or think about the inclusion of indigenous uh, traditions or Native American or, um, you know, even ways of life from Africa, the continent of Africa. Right. So so voodoo was not mentioned, you know, um, ancestral. Right. These things never really get thought of when we think of a world religions class, okay? So what? Well, I would argue that the category of religion is a racialized category, even when race is not explicitly on the table, okay? Furthermore, colonialism has everything to do with the ways in which we have come to know what religion is, what we mean by religion, what counts as a religion, what gets left out, who gets left out. And ultimately what we do when we talk about religion is really prioritize a particular understanding of Western subjectivity. And what we do is we put Christianity at the top Christianity kind of becomes a prototypical default by what we mean when we say religion. And everything else sort of flows from that hierarchy, right? So we have to be aware that Western scholars of religion design the category to reinforce colonialism. And so much of how we interpret even faith and apply faith is really a byproduct of how we have uh, come to know and internalize what we mean by religion. And so how does this play out in society? How does this play out in society? There is a very notable book called Divided by Faith that deals with um, what's considered to be the most segregated time of Life. Can anybody tell me when that time is? Sunday mornings, right? When different groups of people, different cultural groups, racial groups are at their own churches. Okay? Now, there is historic precedent for this, of course. Um, but it's clear that religious communities reflect a racial divide. And so these two sociologists, uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, they set out to investigate why is that the case? How come people are separated on Sunday mornings when supposedly the gospel calls us to be together, to love one another, 
And so they studied the role of white Christian evangelicals in race relations. Um, can anybody tell me why? Well, it says it right here, right? But there's another reason. Yes, it is true that white Christian evangelicals are a good sample because historically they live apart from other races, uh, specifically black people. Um, but why else? Can anybody tell me why else? Wait, say that again? Okay, yes, politically they are important. Maybe other groups of Christians are more east of other religions or some of the beliefs, and they particularly want to convert people and bring them to Christian Okay, yes, excellent, right? So what's on the books with this particular group during, during and after the Civil Rights Movement, they actually initiated an official racial reconciliation movement. Do we know this? Has anybody ever heard this? Yeah. Um, hence this presentation. It didn't work. Okay, it didn't work. Anybody want to guess why it didn't work? Power. Say that again? Power. Power. What, what, uh, what, do, you, what do you mean by power? Power was, uh, wasn't shared. The power was maintained with the white people. Okay, excellent, right? Excellent. Now we're going to break that down. We're going to break that down. So when... when uh, Emerson and Smith interviewed white evangelicals who were part of the racial reconciliation movement, and they asked them, you know, wh why is racism still happening? They attributed racism to one of these three problems, okay? They said, you know, people are just prejudiced and they don't repent. They also said, well, non-white people are blaming others when this is just an individual problem. You know, we just got to ignore this stuff and it'll go away. And, and or, they said, non-white people are really harping on something that's just not real. Racism doesn't exist anymore. I don't understand, you know, why this is happening, right? Why do you all think they came to these conclusions? Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So, and, and there's, a, there's a sort of 50 cent academic way, right, that uh, Emerson and Smith went about describing just that. So they refer to sociologist Ann Swindler, who talks of toolkits, how each culture has a toolkit. And within that toolkit is a particular repertoire of, of you know, how we deal with uh, situations, people, relationships, so on. And what was found in the white evangelical toolkit, the major tool was this reliance on free will individualism. This idea that, look, it's just about me. I just have to worry about me. I get mine, you get yours, and we don't have to worry about competition or anything else that we would think connects us to get what we want, okay? So, so what's missing here is an inability to perceive social structures, systems, and how they interconnect, uh, and really how they bring people together or don't. And so ultimately, it wasn't that white evangelicals 
couldn't see race. They couldn't understand why racism gave them advantage. Okay, they couldn't understand the, the systemic privileges that came from being white. So that individualism erodes their ability to see themselves as part of a bigger community, but also embedded within a system that privileges that community. And so enter the late uh, Reverend Dr. James Cone, okay? Now, James Cone, um, near and dear to my heart, changed my entire life. He is the reason that I went to seminary, okay? I didn't have a way to understand faith and the issues of race and society until I encountered black theology. And so um, what's important to know about why Cone produces this, this, this text is that he's influenced his entire life by Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. He's living through the civil rights movement. He's living through the black power movement. But there comes a particular time in the civil rights movement, and, and it should be noted that Cone considers Martin Luther King to be the progenitor of black theology. So before black theology is penned, Cone is watching Dr. Martin Luther King and saying to himself, this is the theology I've been waiting for my whole life, right? And what he's paying attention to is, in particular, Dr. Martin Luther King's turn towards the end of his public ministry to economics, okay? So, and, and you know, it's serendipitous. You all have this relationship with the Poor People's Campaign. Um, I just wrote about, you know, the fact that we need to, to, to reconsider the Poor People's Campaign as a way forward today, because so much of what we get, so much of what we don't talk about um, in the ministry of Martin Luther King was the Poor People's Campaign. And that was probably one of the, one of the last most revolutionary things he ever did. Um, but that was a turn now to non-race-based issues, looking specifically at political economics and asking questions about power, about system, and how that impacts race. And so Cone now is sort of looking at all of these um, shifts in Martin Luther King's career take place. And he's realizing that Christians are now being called to act economically in the name of justice. But as we all know, MLK gets assassinated, right? He goes to Memphis. He calls for the boycott of major corporations like uh, Coca-Cola and Wonder Bread. And then the next day, he's assassinated, right? So now what's left of the movement? Cone is trying to pick up those pieces, knowing that the black power movement eventually eclipse, eclipses the Poor People's Campaign, takes all of the energy around economic justice and transforms it into a whole new movement called the Black Power Movement. But before we get into that, let's just talk about what black theology, black theology is. Okay, what is it? 
what is what is black theology? I'm not. I'm look. I'm not looking for an essay. Um, you will not be graded. Excellent. There you go. Okay. Um, up until this point, up until this point, um, yes, Latia. Okay. So, so Cone really develops black theology as a break from the Eurocentric theological movements in favor of a radical appreciation of blackness, okay? Why was it started? Before James Cone, racism did not have standing as a theological topic. Before Cone, racism was not a theological topic. And so what was its purpose? Just like Rev. Latia said, it was to reconfigure Christian salvation with a focus on race. And so just some central tenets to black theology, right? Christ enters the world where the poor and despised are located. Jesus is not only the savior, but the liberator of oppressed peoples. Jesus is black, and blackness is not just about skin color. This is the most important part. Blackness represents all victims of oppression who realize that the survival of their humanity is bound up with liberation from whiteness. Okay, and again, you have to keep in mind that Cone is thinking systemically. He's thinking systemically. So Christian salvation is a matter of identifying with ontological blackness. Can anybody tell me what ontological means? The beginning of something. Ontological? Yeah, right? <laughs> no. How something came to be. Yes, excellent, good. There you go. So it's the being. It's the being of something. Right? It's identification with the being, the existence the reality, the experience of something, okay? And he's saying that this is something that, whether you're black or you're white, you need to identify with. Because to a large extent, accepting white privilege dehumanizes white people within a system that oppresses black people. You understand? Am I going too fast? Okay. So Cone begins to write black theology and black power as a way to get black Christians to pay attention to political economics. Again, he sees that MLK's poor people campaign, poor people's campaign was a start. But then when Martin Luther King Jr. gets assassinated, Christians are left sort of to figure it out. Because then the black power movement starts up and it takes a whole different direction, right? It's, it's not led by um, proponents of nonviolence 
who were leading the civil rights movement, who were also pastors and so on, right? Um, these are a young radical group of people who are even willing to say what I said in the beginning of this presentation, that capitalism cannot improve the lives and conditions of all people. MLK didn't really say that, okay? MLK was not, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that he would consider himself a socialist, per se, right? He didn't call for the abolition of private property and land and so on and so forth, right? Um, but the Panthers did. <laughs> the Panthers did, okay? And so Cohn is paying attention to all of this, and he's asking, well, where are, where are black Christians in this conversation? What do we have to say about economic justice as it relates to racial equality? And so this becomes the biggest missing piece in black theology and in womanism, which, you know, chronologically speaking, becomes a corrective to black theology. Black theology never develops uh, an economic model of racial justice. And, you know, Cohn goes on to do amazing things. Um, he further develops black theology, right? He, he does black liberation theology next, and he does God of the Oppressed all the way down to the cross and the lynching tree, right? He, he stays in his wheelhouse of theology. But the people still needed some type of economic response to racial injustice. Boom. The Panthers. Now, who are the Black Panthers? Can somebody tell me who, who were they? When you hear about them today, what do you hear about? I would agree. I would agree. So what do you hear about? It's almost put in uh, opposition to Martin Luther King. That's true. That is true. So, so yes, uh, you know, originally these are the Black Panthers, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, right? Um, so, so yes, they're, they're, they're known for the, you know, the sort of gun-wielding, right? Uh, black beret, black leather jackets. Uh, militant, disciplined style of activism, right? A sort of contrast to what we saw with the civil rights leadership of pastors, black pastors in suits who were nonviolent. Um, wh what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, you don't hear that that strong idea of self-defense is why they um, carried guns mm -hmm. because of the uh, way that Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. And so, and so what gets sensationalized, almost romanticized, right, are the big afros and the fear that they elicit in the social imaginary of Americans. Um, I am here to tell you, and, and my entire book is about this, these were black socialists first and foremost. These were revolutionary nationalists. These were trenchant critics of capitalism. First and foremost, the gun doesn't make sense without their economic philosophies. Their free breakfast program for children doesn't make sense without their economic philosophies. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. Because I believe this is 
the way forward for us when thinking about race and liberation? What's the missing piece? The economic model, the economic ideas. And they provide that. It just so happens to be the case that they weren't Christian. And so, in order to have this conversation, let's talk about political economics. Um, so political economics is concerned with the nature and exercise of power, right, uh, within the material world. Now, what practice of power defines a political economy today? I'm sorry, what? Okay. What kind of economic system are we living in? Capitalism. Capitalism defines our political economy today, okay? The Panthers were geniuses because they identified two historic problems with capitalism. And this is, a common, uh, this is a common critique, right, from those who don't have the conversation about economic justice from the position of neoclassical thinking, right? So, so, so there are two ways to have a conversation about economic justice, right? You can either be a neoclassical thinker or neoliberal thinker, or you can be what's, what's called a Marxist. Now, if you're a Marxist, it doesn't mean that you're a Marxist. It, just, it might mean that you utilize Marxist thought or Marxist tools for analysis, right? But that's just sort of how this plays out. I didn't make the rules here, right? Um, but if you're a neoclassical economist, what you're really doing is trying to work out economic justice from within the system. So you're trying to use capitalism to make the world a better place for everybody, right? Um, which, again, I don't think you can do. But if you're a Marxist, now you're having a different type of conversation about economic justice. And it begins by identifying these two problems with capitalism. The first is that in a capitalist society, it's highly individualistic in the way actors participate um, in the material world. Okay, so again, I, look, I'm gonna get mine, you can get yours. I don't have to worry about you or you. I have to pull myself up from my bootstraps, okay? That's capitalism. Secondly, freedom or liberation or liberty, however you wanna configure that word, in a capitalist society is a conversation about freedom in the sense that you're free to spend however much money you have in your budget without any consideration of race, class, gender, differing sets of life opportunities. Capitalism doesn't, we don't care about it. Are you free to spend your money? Okay, then you're free, right? Whereas most Marxists and socialists are concerned with the freedom to become, the freedom to do. Are you free, are you truly free to be the person you wanna be, to live the life that you wanna live? Because that is ultimately gonna impact um, your relationship to the material world, okay? And, and so the Panthers were on this side. And so this is how their economic theories played out in reality, right? Um, there's, a, there's a 50 cent academic world called praxis. Can anybody tell me what praxis is? Praxis. 
Yes, revolutionary action. Or another way to put it, revolutionary social practices, right? That's praxis. And so they took their critiques of capitalism and doubled down with praxis, ways to make their socialist ideas real. So they created these intercommunal survival programs. This is, this is the most revolutionary thing the Panthers did. Okay, I know they carried guns and they stood up to police, they policed the police, um, and at times were, were in life and death conflict with the police on behalf of black communities that, that needed a voice. But this is really the most revolutionary thing that they did. Everything else was pretty much self-defense. This recreated the world as we know it. Their free breakfast, and this is only a fraction. They had about 200 plus services. Free ambulance programs, uh, free, free shoe programs, free uh, busing to prison pro, I mean, you name it, okay? Why were they revolutionary? Because they were able to redistribute the wealth. Okay, we live in a capitalist society where if you produce, you probably don't own what you're producing. And you probably don't own the means of production to produce that thing. Somebody else owns that and you actually work for them. So, so you contract out your, your time and your labor to them, right? They said, no, 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 no. That's, that's literally slavery. That, that, is, that is, the foundation of slavery created that dynamic for black people in the United States. Why would we continue to do that? In fact, given the way police brutality operates and functions, we're always gonna be in a subservient position if we don't own, if we don't create a new world within a world where we own what we produce. Therefore, we, can, we cannot be exploited by anybody. Therefore, we can have the political power to challenge police, not just with guns, but with the actual country, right? As much as they were uh, revolutionaries, they believed in internal contradictions. So they used the uh, Declaration of Independence. And they said, well, if, American if America can go to war with England, we can go to war with America. Because we're, we're, black people are a colony in this country. And we're being taken advantage of. And we need to be free, right? And this was, and this was the strategy, okay? All of these programs, they owned. They self-determined, they self-sustained. They were, they were given funding from uh, many rich celebrities at the time, uh, but eventually these programs became self-generating, okay? Um, so so that, that sort of socialist world that they envisioned, they were making real in praxis. Now the whole aim, again, was to challenge that um, dependency Right? They, these were anti-colonial thinkers. Um, and they actually did something that is left out of conversations in Marxist thought. Um, you know, and, and just for a quick, so, so, so Marx, Marx had this idea that the proletariat would lead the revolution, so the working class, right? The Panthers were concerned with that, and then some. Marx said that there's gonna be a section of the, um, of the, of, the, of the working class that has really no investment in the revolution because they're not working, right? They may be in abject poverty 
right? Um, so he said no. The Panther said no. Those are precisely the people who will lead the revolution. And they focused a lot of their energy on recruiting those types of people. So basically people who were victims of police brutality, went into prison, came out, now they're considered unemployable, right? Sex workers, right? People who society said, no, we don't want you. The Panther said, oh, we do. We have the utmost need of you, okay? And so they relied heavily on what Marx called the lumpen proletariat. Marx said, no, 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 the lumpen proletariat is not gonna be part of the revolution. The Panther said, oh no, they will be. They will lead the revolution. And so where is this conversation today? Um, you know, black churches didn't really pick up on the black theology and black power conversation. Um, as much as black churches and, and some churches may uh, preach some liberation theology from the pulpit, the praxis, specifically around the black power component to what Cohn was talking about, um, ha has not really been developed. So a lot of praxis that we see in black churches today is not specifically economic in nature. It's, it's more, you know, pious, right? Um, or political, right? We still see many black churches involved in the political realm, um, but we also see a lot of black churches speaking to that sort of feel-good need that we all have sometimes. Um, BLM, you know, BLM was an interesting time. Um, you know, I think when it first started, a lot of people figured it resembled some of the, some of the black power momentum um, and it's sort of unapologetically black presentation. Um, but it wasn't really black church led and it didn't really have a strong economic justice model. Um, and I'm sure you all are aware of you know, where BLM has, has gone economically since then because they've been opening themselves up to lots of critique for that. Um, there's another group. Uh, has anybody ever heard of the Black Socialists of America? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the Black Socialists of America. I think when it comes to the theory behind a lot of what the Panthers started. And, and really the Panthers, I wouldn't say started it, they continued a long conversation that I think maybe started with people like um, Richard Allen and then Marcus Garvey um, and Malcolm X. Ultimately, Malcolm X. He was, Malcolm X was the black power paradigm. Um, so they are uh, having those conversations online a lot. Um, and so they generate a lot of awareness um, of the ideas and the conversations. I, I don't see the praxis, though. I don't see, and, and this is not a critique. This is not a critique. But I don't see the praxis from, from this group. Um, but they do present this idea called dual power. Um, anybody want to give a guess what that might mean? Uh, dual power to bring about economic justice? Well, it, it's just the idea that um, you, know, you can't just have corporate elites controlling everything, right? There needs to be some type of balance of power where you know, even if you work for corporate elites, you have just as much say so, right? But you know, this imbalance um, where it's really hard to hold the elite accountable is really the root cause of a lot of the issues that we have in our capitalist society. So, so they present this idea of dual power. Um, and, then, and then has anybody ever heard of Cooperation Jackson? Cooperation Jackson? 
I think there are many cooperations, um, but Cooperation Jackson is out of Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, and they do self-sustainability training. So a buddy of mine, um, uh, he, he, in Denver at the time, he was working with some young people around uh, liberation in the Chicano American community, and they, uh, they, had, they acquired a land trust, I believe in Arizona, where they go out and they you know, do a summer camp with these young people. And Cooperation Jackson, I believe, came out and taught them some self-sustainability skills. So irrig irrigating land, farming, building, um, you know, basically things that can teach you to survive on your own, in your own community, so you don't have to depend on, on others. But really, you know, this is sort of where we are today with this conversation around economic justice um, and how we can turn it into praxis. Um, and I'm open, you know, to having conversations about where we can go, um, go next. Um, I'm going to leave it now open for some Q&A, but I do have some discussion questions um, for us to, to entertain. Um, but before that, you know, if anybody has any questions, we can get into, we can get into that first. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, so you know, I think that um, I think I think it starts with black churches. I think black churches need to be very critical about our our legacy, um, specifically with racial justice and activism. Where are we now? What, what are we supposed to be doing? Um, what have we been doing that we're not doing anymore? You know, Eddie Glaude. Uh, who was actually an inspiration for why I went down this rabbit hole of research. He wrote a, a, a famous article some years ago called The Black Church is Dead. Is anybody familiar with this article? Um, it was an interesting piece because he basically calls out the black church or black churches um, for being a thing of the past, for resting on their laurels of civil rights activism and not really um, showing up anymore. For some, of, for some of the most important issues that still exist from, from back in that time. Um, what's interesting about that, I was actually serving in ministry at the time, and before I was serving in ministry, I wasn't. I wasn't even going to church. So I got defensive when he wrote that because I was serving at a church, but had I not been, I don't know, I probably would have agreed. Probably would have agreed. Um, and today, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, BLM happened. Uh, black churches were not central to BLM. <laughs> um, I think that's really telling. Um, I think the message of BLM was the same message during the Civil Rights Movement, the same message during the Black Power Movement, and yet the black church had nothing really to do with it um, outside of, you know, support. Um, so, you know, what, what that says about black churches, I, I think, is that black churches have become a little bit more cent centered in the conversation in society today, um, and how much how much fight do we have in us? You know, um, I think remains a question. Oh, I have a question. So my family members, whenever I have this discussion, they always say, 
Well, Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. And uh, my response is always, well, Jesus didn't know about democratic socialism. <laughs> but like, so I'm, I'm an unabashed <coughs> Bernie Sanders democratic socialist. Is there a way, and I mean, I don't even know, like, is there a way that that movement can fuse, that we can fuse together and have a pathway? Or is that, or is, or is he just asking for redistribution of the wealth that capitalism has already made? And is that never going to work? Yeah. Um, so I do understand the politics of Jesus to be um, parallel in some ways to the concerns we have today, specifically around economic justice from a faith-based liber liberation theology perspective. Absolutely. Um, the issues are different. Racism, you know, is sort of a huge factor now in how we understand the issue. Um, but I will say that any way to attack the problem is acceptable. I don't know that there's just one. This is my one way. <laughs> um, you know, but I think that we all need to be creative and able to think about how we can attack the issue, confront the challenges from all sides, all angles. So all ideas are welcome. Um, you know, I think that to the extent that people are working within the system, let them. Um, you know, I think to the extent that there are others outside, okay. And if there's any middle ground that can be found, we, we do need to talk about what that looks like. Um, but, you know, I don't think the goal would be to just let people go off and do their own things. I think we need to be some type of united front. Um, but I think what's ultimately missing is the conversation. You know, where, where are the spaces where we can have these conversations about that middle ground, about that way to bring our ideas together and create some type of mosaic of an approach? Yeah. And I should say, I'm not, I'm not just a Democrat. I'm also a member of the Poor People's Campaign, mm -hmm. which I think yeah. is really has some, you know, has some solutions. Well, you know, the, the, the truth is, as much as I think socialism is the answer, right, uh, or black socialism in this case, um, nobody is a socialist. Nobody. Uh, no socialist states exist, really, right, that are helping us in this fight. So everything right now is, is forethought, right? Um, and to the extent that we can bring that into reality through praxis and then bring others into some type of conversation, I think that's sort of the way forward. Yeah, right. Well, I feel like if that Jesus was using that as another like, like uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of mm -hmm. like, exactly. like, oh, just what do you mean? Yes. So, um, you know, typically when we have conversations about race and racism, 
Um, we, we tend to talk about black communities, right, communities of color. We don't, we don't really talk about white communities. And we don't um, actually promote sometimes the idea that white people have a huge responsibility to identify themselves as a community in this conversation, right? Because of white privilege and because of what racism is. It's a, it's a system of, of, uh, of oppression. And so um, by not viewing, by a white person not viewing their own self as part of a white community and just seeing themselves as an individual, that perpetuates the problem. And so my question from that is, yeah. do you see that this is, like that is by design? Absolutely, okay. yes, 100%, 100%. Um, because again, in a capitalist system, that's why racism works. You see, um, capitalism is not uh, designed to make you care about the next person, right? Um, and, and, and so those who feel the, the brunt of that are racialized communities, right? Um, because white communities don't really see themselves as part of a greater whole within that overall system that perpetuates these injustices. If, if, if they had one at all, but go ahead. Okay. No, I was just curious if you could talk a little more about that. Yeah. I, I don't, I'm not really in the sure. about it. And I'm just curious. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I did BLM for like three years. Uh, full, full confession, right? Full disclosure. I was uh, one of the charter members of the BLM 5280 chapter in Denver. So from 2014 to 2017, we chartered the BLM chapter in Denver. My, my passion in that group and my specific contribution was economics. So I looked, I took all my dis dissertation research and I tried to, you know, include it in the group thinking, well, we have, we have a time now where we can actually make some of this stuff real. Um, now BLM National didn't have that, right? And as a local chapter, I was the only person thinking about those things. So what I'm trying to say is across the board, BLM did not have a um, comprehensive economic justice plan, right? And then when the Movement for Black Lives platform came out, and uh, does anybody remember all the lists of demands that they had? Um, well, the Movement for Black Lives came out, they had all these lists of demands um, that, they, that they gave to politicians. Um, economics, I think, was, like a, was a section in there, right? But it wasn't, it wasn't anti-colonial in philosophy. Um, it was, it was, I think the concern was reparations, but, but there was no actual critique of how capitalism works to perpetuate racism. And so I, I think that just got lost in the conversation altogether. So without a direct approach to economic justice and without an alternative to what we already know to be economic injustice, BLM didn't really have a plan. It didn't really have a plan. Um, and then, you know, it came out that some of the leadership had millions of dollars and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Any last questions? Uh, yeah, so, uh, what do you think it would take for the 
socialist people who I don't think I'd be wrong saying I'm very white to partner with the black socialists of America. Yeah, I think that needs to happen. I think conversations there need to happen. I think, I think, so, so the reason I think they need to happen is because I think right now, democratic socialism is the most popular alternative, right? And, and we have a lot of thinkers uh, who have a lot of notoriety that, that sort of promote that idea. So Cornell West comes to mind, yeah. right? Um, so when Cornell West is, back, is backing your idea, everybody's gonna sort of, you know, give it some credence. The Black Socialists of America, you know, I, I, I agree, I like them. I like them. I think that they're very radical. They're, they're, the amount, they're, they're the right amount of radical in terms of being able to stretch our thinking um, and to imagine what we've never thought of before. Um, so what I'm saying, but, but they're just not as popular. You know, I, I, the only reason I know about them is because an economist told me about them when I was writing my dissertation. He said, you sound like one of them. You should go and research their ideas, maybe get in touch with them. Full disclosure, I didn't because I wanted to get a job and I didn't want the feds tracking me. Um, and I know that the black socialists of America get tracked by the feds. Um, so with that said, they're not that popular for that reason. They're very radical, but their ideas are, I think they hit the nail on the head. So I think that they need to come in conversation with some of the more popular groups just to get that support um, and maybe some cross-pollination of ideas. Um, because again, I don't, think there's, I don't think there's one way to do this. I think we all just need to come together, have conversations, and learn from each other. And then, you know, if what you're saying works in your context, but now I can offer you something different that might help you be more effective, fine, and vice versa. Thank you. Thank you all.